You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. So we're looking at the book of Genesis, and um, it's obviously the first book of the Bible, hence the name Genesis. And um, Genesis 1 through 11 is uh, often called uh, the primeval history. And in that section of Genesis, it's mostly about uh, the establishment of this rebellion against God, where in Genesis chapter 3, after God has made the world uh, a good place, and humans, the gardeners of the world, very good in the very image of God. Uh, inexplicably, humans rebel against God and join forces with this mysterious serpent, um, who we later find out in the Bible is the enemy, Satan, the devil, a fallen angel. Humans join forces with this uh, enemy against God in a rebellion. And together uh, in Genesis 3 through 11, we see them um, spreading out across the globe and forming this thing that I call the empire. The Bible sometimes uses the word uh, the world. You can choose whatever words you want, but the, the world is sometimes described as cosmic powers of evil in high places, or spiritual forces of darkness um, of this present age. So there, there's this idea that humans join with uh, these dark forces all the way up to the top being Satan, and, this, and they kind of control this world that we live in. It's called the empire. You see that spreading out in Genesis 1 through 11. So in Genesis 12, we see God kind of invading the empire through this man named Abram. And he tells Abram, I am going to take you out of the empire of Babylon. And I am going to make of you this rebel army that will fight against the galactic empire. So obviously, Star Wars, that kind of imagery comes from this, I, this whole story of the scripture. Um, and... We, see, uh, we saw last week the way that God established that kingdom in Genesis 12. We're not going through every chapter of Genesis, but Genesis 15 is a crucial chapter where Abraham doubts that the kingdom is really coming. He doubts uh, essentially God's promise. He's looking around and he's saying, you know, when you made that promise to me back in Genesis 12, I don't see anything happening. I, I see no, you said, God, that you would make of me this great nation and that we would be this rebel army, that we would bring down the empire. I'm not seeing any of it. So he has no son. You know, God promised him a son, even though he was like 90 and his wife of Sarah's 90. And he's looking around, there's no son. And so he's giving up. He's despairing. He thinks that evil's winning, that nothing's happening. And so uh, God comes and he reassures Abram in that state of unbelief. And I want to look at those two things. Um, the mistrust that Abraham experiences, where he doubts, and then the reassurance of God where he comes and basically says, I'm putting my life on the line to show you that what I am doing is real. So those two things, mistrust and then assurance. <clears throat> and really that's kind of the walk 
of a Christian life. If you're not a believer, if you're a young believer, you might think that once you believe, all of the unbelief and the mistrust is gone forever, and that's not true at all. We know as Christians that it comes in every day. The unbelief comes at us every single day. And really, faith is the conquering of doubt every single day, multiple times a day. So first of all, the doubt, the mistrust. Uh, last week, we saw that as soon as God promised Abram this, uh, this great kingdom <clears throat> that would be centered in Palestine or Canaan, the promised land, immediately uh, when a famine came and there was a little bit of resistance, Abraham fled back to the empire. He went south to Egypt. And, um, and God rescued him out of Egypt and brought him back to Canaan, actually brought him back with wealth. And then in chapters 13 and 14, which we're skipping, we see Abraham beginning to trust God. And in Abraham, uh, in chapter 13, he lets his cousin Lot have the best land, which is an act of trust. Um, and also he allows Lot uh, to go away. And some scholars think that he, he thought it would be through Lot that the, the kingdom would come since he was barren and his wife was barren because they were so old. So in doing that, it was an act of trust, Genesis 13. Genesis 14, Abraham risks his life to go and pursue these people who attacked Lot. And he and a small army go and they, they attack these people and they bring, uh, they, they bring Lot back to safety. Another example of trust. So in, in chapter 13 and 14, we see Abraham learning to trust. But now in chapter 15, some time has gone by and we see uh, the mistrust creep back in. And that's why God has to say in verse 1, fear not. Abraham, because obviously Abraham is afraid. Um, he has, again, he's seen all these years pass, nothing's happened, it's still he and Sarah, there's no great nation, there's no kingdom, it's just the two of them. Lot has gone away, there's no prospect of a child. The only person in his whole household that could inherit is this servant named Eleazar of Damascus. And that's not really cutting it for Abraham. So uh, things are not going well, and he's afraid. And sometimes we get afraid when we we think God has promised all these things, like especially resurrection, you know, a coming kingdom, that one day God says this whole earth will be restored and you'll be resurrected, and we doubt that. We doubt that. We doubt the promises of God. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. That's why Abram's afraid. And, and if you notice in verse 1, God, there's no recrimination. Um, there, there is no mocking him or um, there's no guilt. There's no um, passive-aggressive kind of guilt on God's part. He just says uh, in verse 1, I am your shield, and your reward is very great. He just, he just reiterates it. I would love to know the tone of voice there, because it would not have been manipulative at all. It was just a statement of the facts. I am your shield still, Abram. I'm your very great reward. And strangely, that, that statement, uh, and this is an interesting psychological part of human beings, is when God reiterates that promise to him, Abram actually gets upset about it. There's this outburst. Sometimes a little bit of hope will stir up anger like that. So in verse 2, there is a lot of passion behind that. I'm not sure how it's translated in your Bible, but basically he's saying, you know, you're telling me you're my shield and you're my reward, but there's no child. You know, who, I don't want to hear that. Where is the child? One translation says, uh, what good are your promises when I don't even have a son? And so we do this where... When someone tries to comfort us or reassure us when we're afraid and we're mistrusting, we kind of lash out sometimes. I remember when this service was starting, we were meeting over at Redeemer. There were like 30 people, 5 o'clock p.m. It was, it was touch and go. It was, things were not, they were not stable. And, you know, one time we had like really small, it was, I think it was a Super Bowl. There were like 20 people there because it was Super Bowl, 5 o'clock. Uh, nobody came. 
And, uh, and I remember going home and, and complaining, as I always did, to Margie, my wife. And uh, she tried to encourage me. Whenever she tried to encourage me, it would just stir me up to get more angry and attack more. And um, you know, I remember one time her saying, well, you always have me and the kids. And I, and I was like, do you think that makes me feel any better about the church? You know, the, ch- the church is failing. Um, so sometimes the comfort of a loved one will cause us, as, as in this case, to kind of express like a bitter unbelief will come out. Um, and, and that's what's happening here. And notice God's response here. Between two and three, there's a blank space. So in the Bible, whenever a character says something, like Abraham says, what will you give me, in verse two, and then there's an end of quote, he stops talking, and then in verse three, nothing happens between two and three. God doesn't respond. And, and when there's a blank space like that in the Bible, between two verses, that means that there's a pause. And that means that God is intentionally not saying anything. He's just listening. He's just absorbing all the anger of Abram. He just sits there and takes it. So, what will you give me? Pause. Look, you've given me no offspring. So Abraham just keeps ranting. So wave after wave of unbelief, of mistrust, of bitter doubt, and then wave after wave after wave of just patient comfort from God. God just simply says in verse 4, this man will not be your heir. Eleazar of Damascus is not the one through whom the promise will come. You will receive your very own son as an heir. He just restates it. Just contradicts him kindly, but firmly. This man will not be your heir. And, and then what God does is he, he, he shows him a visual of what he's promised. It's very gracious on God's part. Rather than rebuking Abram, he shows him this beautiful image. And it's, it's very famous. People don't often realize that it comes in the context of doubt. It comes in the context of Abram's unfaithfulness. But he takes Abram outside. This is in a time where there would be no light pollution uh, in, you know, in the Middle East, in a desert. He brings uh, Abram outside. He says, look towards the heavens and number the stars of the sky, if you're able to number them. And there's a long pause there. And there's, again, that's one of those blank spaces. There's a long pause. God finishes speaking. Pause. He's looking at the stars. And then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. I will fulfill the promise. I will create a kingdom. You will have a son. And through that son, I will create thousands of people. You know, if you look at the sky um, from a a mountain or something, like in the the remote mountains of Chile, apparently is the best place on earth to, to look at the stars. If you look at the stars on a night like that, you can see 5,000 with the naked eye. And so imagine Abram seeing all those stars. And I've seen images of them. And when you see stars in a setting like that, they're different colors. Some are much larger than others. Um, It's almost like a rainbow or a cloud of stars in the sky, different brightnesses. And God is saying, look at those stars, Abram. Uh, That star full of skies is going to be the kingdom that will come through you. That will be the great nation that will come through you. That will be the rebel army that will fight the empire. The sky full of stars. And so we know that today, there are billions, there are over a billion Christians in the world that are offspring of Abram. Um, You know, right here today in this field, Abram could could not have imagined, that was 4,000 years ago, and now here's a field of people that are some of those stars that Abraham was looking at in the sky. Here we are in a field. But all the Christians, all of Israel for those thousands of years, part of 
of this sky full of stars and all the ways that the kingdom has come and, and subverted and undermined the empire, um, you know, with human rights, hospitals, universities, art, science, all these things that the kingdom of God has brought on earth. Abraham could not have imagined when he looked at those stars that that's what God was talking about. But I think the application for us is, you know, where have you seen a vision of the kingdom in your life? Where has God called you to some aspect of the kingdom? Like, he, like he's calling Austin to go to Indonesia to do kingdom business. Where have you seen something of the kingdom, some promise of the kingdom, and you've forgotten it? And you're not believing it anymore. And you're, you're doubting that you even heard that. Maybe God spoke to you very clearly, and you have kind of forgotten that, or you're giving up, or you're losing hope. You know, I, um, I have uh, had a lot of fears, a lot of doubts about the efficacy of baptism through our children in the past. And, uh, you know, when your children become adolescents, it's easy to, to believe that these, these promises of baptism over a child are, are not actually taking hold. Because you look at your children and you think, it's not happening. They're not believing the gospel. So pretty recently I was, um, I was having a really hard time sleeping. I had a really hard time going to bed. Uh, this was in New Jersey of all places. So this is in the state of New Jersey this happened. And um, I woke up, I woke up in the middle of the night. And, um, you know, the only way that I could describe, I use the word visitation. I don't know. I've, somebody told me after I preached this sermon uh, earlier today, they said, I've had that same thing happen to me. So maybe this has happened to you. But I wake up and I'm definitely awake. It's not just a vision. But I feel like someone has poured, you know, like kind of a liquid heat through my whole body. It just feels like it's going down through my veins. And it's just joy. It's like electricity. And all I, all I can experience is just the worship of God. I just keep saying to myself, you're beautiful, you're amazing, you're holy, holy. Like in Revelation, the way they, it's just like I'm resonating with the reality of God right there. And I'm not even a charismatic, okay? I'm a Presbyterian pastor. And that really happened to me. And it's like God is saying, I am, I am real, I am here. It's all true. All this stuff about the resurrection, the forgiveness of your sins, your adoption as a child of God, it's all true. It's all true. And yet, that having happened, you know, a few days later, now it's been a few weeks later, I'm kind of like, well, did that really mean anything? Did I, did I drink something that night or, you know, take some medicine that had that effect? It's just so easy to doubt these things that God brings into our lives. Even after the stars, even after the stars, Abram doubts. So this, for me, this will be the last, if I were God, that would be the end of my relationship with Abram. I would say, one too many times, Abram. You have doubted me one too many times. But in verse eight, Abram says to God, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess this? And God could have said, well, how about the stars I just showed you? You know, how about all the times I promised you already? But instead of doing that, or like I rescued you from Egypt, I brought you back from Egypt with all these goods, I've obviously been with you, but God doesn't do that. God's kind of like, uh, well, words didn't work and the star thing didn't work. And so now I'm just gonna have to write it in my own blood that I will not forsake you and that this will happen. And that, that leads to point two. And uh, this, the second point, which I'm calling reassurance, I heard a sermon by Tim Keller, uh, who's my favorite preacher. He's in, he was a preacher in New York City. 
Um, and he, he, said, he says that this, I think he said this is the, to him, this is the most beautiful depiction of the gospel in the Old Testament. So listen up. Um, if he says that, you should really take that seriously. So here's what happens. Okay, remember the context. Abraham's saying, I want to know for certain. You know, I want collateral. You know, I, I want a proof. I want a guarantee. Show me this is really going to happen. And God simply says in verse 9, okay, verse 9, uh, bring me a cow, bring me a goat, and bring me a ram and some birds. And I think at that point, Abram was like, uh-oh, I think I might have asked too much here. I think I have gotten myself in too deep. I have bitten off more than I could chew because uh, he knew exactly what was happening when God said, bring me these animals. And so in verse 10, he does this thing that uh, God, God didn't even tell him to do, but he knew that he had to do it, which is that he, he brought the animals to the Lord, he cut them in half, and he laid each half on a path. Now you can read over that verse and think about that verse and just you know, go right past the gory details, but I don't want to do that. I want you to think about that. And if you love animals, I love animals. I, God loves animals more. He loves that. He loved this cow. This is a very um, pure. This is a beautiful animal. Probably the best cow that Abram had. He says, "I want you to kill that cow and that goat, that beautiful animal that I made, and that ram, and those those birds. And it's a desecration of my creation. I know that that's happening. But that's the very point. Is that it's very serious what I'm doing here. And and there, there was this thing called the blood path." that they knew about back then, that you would do this at weddings in the ancient Near East. It was how you confirmed the most serious covenants, like a marriage. That's why it says in verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant. This is a covenant ceremony. Covenant means a, a, a very serious bond in blood to, to the death, that kind, of, that kind of bond. So you would have, um, if, if, a, if, the, if a man was marrying a woman, the the groom and the father of the, of the woman would be the two that would make this covenant. And the covenant would be saying, the groom would be saying, may it, may it be done to me as to these animals if I do not take care of your daughter. And the father would go through second and he would say, may it be done to me as to these animals if I do not give you what you need and provide for you. That was the way it was, that's the way it worked back then. So they would have cut these beautiful animals in two parts they would lay them in kind of a ditch that, that sloped downward. And so all the blood would pour into this middle path, the blood path. And then with their robes, they would walk through that blood, which would have been deep and, and would have been a significant amount of blood. And they would, their clothes would, would get bloody as they did that. And they would be saying, that's how seriously I'm taking this covenant with you. You know, may I die. Let it be done to me like these animals if I fail to keep that that covenant. Now today we don't do weddings like that. Um, we just put on rings. So <laughs> I'm grateful for that. But imagine going through that. Imagine in a wedding experiencing that. Um, that's why Abraham hesitates. You know, he, he, he doesn't do anything. In verse 11, it says the birds of prey came down on the carcasses. The reason why is because he sat there for hours and the vultures finally came down. Uh, he's not going to walk through that path because he knows if I walk through that path, I am essentially forfeiting my life because I know that I cannot keep that covenant because I've already been faithless. I've already gone down to Egypt once. I can tell right now that I don't really have the ability to keep this covenant with God. And so he will, he will not pass through those pieces 
Because he knows what would happen to him if he passed those pieces. If you enter into a covenant with God that serious, there are consequences. And Abram knows that. And so God does this remarkable thing. In verse 12, it says, deep sleep fell on Abram and dreadful darkness fell upon him. It's passive. It fell upon him. Uh, God put him to sleep. And what God is saying is, A, you cannot keep this on your own. That's why you're asleep right now. And B, you, would, you should be dead right now. You know, I've got you that close uh, to death. They say that, you know, anesthesiologists almost take you to the point of dying and they keep you alive. Well, that's kind of what God's doing here. He's, he's got Abraham that close to death and he's saying, this is what you deserve. But in that coma state that he's in, God then shows Abram, and I don't know how Abram saw this, but in that state of near sleep, he saw this thing happen. So verse 17, is this, this is what is so beautiful. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a scene that I would love to see portrayed by a great director, cinematographer. Love to see a fantastic cinematographer depict this image. But it says that when the sun had gone down, and I just imagine the vultures, all the blood path, the dark sky, you know, like a, a craggy, ancient uh, Middle Eastern landscape. Just imagine the scene. The sun is going down. It's like blood red on the horizon. It's dark. And then behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. Now, I have this thing at home that uh, it's kind of a the fire pit, but it's like shaped like a pot almost. And I always think of that fire pit when I think about this image of God passing through the pieces. You put the wood inside this kind of cage, metal cage, and it just all this smoke billows up. But that's not really the best image. I, one commentator said it would be more like um, a volcano or lightning striking, like just an amazing amount of energy, like on Mount Sinai. When Israel's when Israel encounters God on Mount Sinai, it's just smoke is everywhere. There's like the sound of a thousand trains and there's fire just shooting out from the mountain. And so when, when this happens, the, the fire and the cloud, this is like the pillar of fire and cloud in the wilderness. God, this is a theophany. A, 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 it's a manifestation of the presence of God. I mean, God is obviously not fire. Uh, he's a spirit, invisible. Um, you can't touch God. But he manifests himself here as fire and smoke. And, and one commentary said that maybe the fire was the first one to pass through the blood path and the smoke was the second one to pass through the blood path. But whatever the case, this is the creator of the universe saying to Abraham, I know that you cannot keep your half of the deal and I'm going to keep that for you. And that's what he says to every one of you today. He's saying, uh, may I be ripped apart if I don't keep my end of the bargain? And may I be ripped apart if you don't keep your end of the bargain. That's the kind of, that's the covenant you get into with God. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is what's happening. And of course, we're going to see that Abraham does fail. He fails miserably again and again. He sleeps with Hagar, his Egyptian maidservant. Uh, he, he doesn't believe over and over and over. He fails. The church has always failed. The, the story of church history is a nightmare. Even the early churches in the, in the letters that Paul wrote, they were, they, were, they were failing constantly. Just read the book of Corinthians. We fail. 
Church has always failed. And so who gets ripped in half? Not us. Not us, but God. That's what Jesus is all about. He came down here and he was ripped in half because he was bearing all of the consequences of your unbelief, your faithlessness. For God to be in a relationship with you, he is constantly bearing all of your, all of your sin, all of your neglect of him, all of your cursing under your breath of him, all the ways that you have ever slandered him to other people and made him look foolish and stupid as I did for 21 years as an atheist. God just bears all of that. He's like, I'm going to take it. And that's what, that's what it's like to be living with God. You know, we're faithless. He gets ripped apart. He's faithful. We get declared righteous. And in verse 6, it says that when Abraham believed the Lord, it was counted to him. That's a very important word, counted to. It means like a credit score. For, for whatever reason, Abraham's account went from the, from the red to like infinite in the black. Because now his righteousness has been counted. It's God's righteousness given to him in spite of all of Abraham's faithlessness. So when we come to this table in just a moment, we are, we are not saying, look how righteous we are. Look how good we've been. Look how faithful we've been. We're these faithful Christians. It's the, it's the exact opposite. It's look how much I mistrust God and look how much he credits to me the righteousness of his son. That is what we experience at this table. And in verse 13, God says, know for certain that your offspring will inherit the land, which to us is a promise. You can know for certain that you're part of the kingdom. You can know for certain the kingdom has come. You can know for certain that you'll be raised from the dead. God's saying, I will do anything to prove to you that I love you. I will go into hell for you to prove to you that I love you. And I will give my own body and blood to you so that you can actually be in covenant with me. So on the night he was betrayed, as a fulfillment of the blood path, and he knew it, Jesus knew it, that's why it was on the night he was betrayed, not on the night that we were faithful, on the night that we betrayed him, he took bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup, and he poured wine into the cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And so whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're making a proclamation of the gospel once again, that though we are faithless, he is faithful, that we can be confident in his love for us, because in the next hour, two hours, three hours, he's going to be cleaning up behind you again and again and again, more and more and more, with, uh, without any bitterness on his part. There's, there's, there's no guilt trip at all. He loves to do it. Uh, that's why he came. He loves to do it. So um, before I pray for us, I just want to say that, you know, when, when I came to church occasionally as an atheist, I did not know what to do when this happened. It made me nervous. It made me uneasy. I didn't really know um, if I should partake just to be nice or not. And I would encourage you not to do that. If you don't believe, if you're not sure what's going on up here, then do not feel any pressure to partake at all. Um, but, but do know that it doesn't, the bar is very low. Okay? It doesn't require a, a strong faith. It doesn't require a lot of resilience. Um, it doesn't require a lot of certainty. You might not be feeling anything right now, but if you want him, 
if you want Jesus and if you want his righteousness, then come and partake. Come and partake. So um, let me pray for us as we come up here. Father, I pray that you would convince our hearts uh, of what our hearts can never believe on their own. Our hearts are so prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Uh, We pray that you would take and seal our hearts for your courts above. As we come and take this meal, just convince us again. We're going to need it tomorrow. We're going to need it next week, and you're fine with that. But convince us again right now that we are your children, that you love us. The kingdom's coming. The empire's falling. The resurrection is to come. The second coming is about to happen. We don't know when, but it's on the horizon. Convince us again that all these things are true. It's all true. We need that. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, if those are, who are serving with me will come up here. If you want the wine, then come to my left, the brick sidewalk. If you want wine, come down the brick sidewalk. And then right before that speaker, come in and we'll serve you on this way. And then if you want the grape juice, uh, come down the sidewalk over here, um, the concrete sidewalk. So brick is the wine, concrete is the grape juice. And you can just put out your hands. We'll put the bread in your hands. And you take that bread and dip it in the cup. And then you can partake right there when you get it. So um, if you all want to stand up, and uh, after you stand up, you can make your choice. Um, But these are the gifts of God.